You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Okay, well, if you're not already there, I want to invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 4 as we continue in our study of Mark's gospel. We're in an interesting place in Mark's gospel. Mark is a very intentional writer. Mark is writing as an evangelist. He's a He's documenting Jesus' life and ministry, but he's doing it in such a way that he's, um, he's putting the pieces together for us in a way that people would see who Jesus is, would recognize him as Savior and Lord. And, um, and it's interesting what we have at this point in Mark's gospel. We're, we're going to get over the next, uh, we'll see this over the next three weeks, we get three miracle scenes in a row. So back to back to back, pretty stunning miracles of Jesus. And it is no coincidence that these three miracle scenes come on the heels of Jesus' parables about the kingdom of God. If you were here with us last week, we looked at Mark 4, Pastor Josh walked us through verses 1 through 34 of chapter 4, where he gives a series of parables about the kingdom of God. In fact, I want to take you back, if you have your Bible open, look back at that last parable, particularly the parable of the mustard seed. If you go back there in Mark chapter 4, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, he says, that it's, it's tiny, it's small, it, at first it's unnoticeable, and Jesus is being specific here. He says, it might be easy to miss who I am, or to overlook that the kingdom of God is breaking in right in front of you. He says this to his, to his hearers. It's like a mustard seed, it's small, and it goes into the ground, but what shoots up out of the ground is something strong and mighty. Its branches are big, and it gives shade and peace to the birds of the air. And don't miss what Jesus was saying here, that Jesus, like the seed, he too would go into the ground through death and through his burial, but in resurrection would shoot up his rule and reign, his victorious kingdom. He would reign as king and under his mighty branches. Anybody who would entrust themselves to him, who would come under his lordship, would experience the peace and the life in the harmony of the shade in which he gives as king. Jesus is being very intentional. And then Mark lines up for us these three miracle moments, one after another, coming on the heels of this word about the kingdom of God. It's hidden, but it's coming. Don't miss it. Jesus is essentially saying in in his parables that he will give shade, refreshing, calming, life-giving peace and shelter to anyone who would find their life hidden under his lordship. That's the promise that he makes. And we need that promise because life in this world is chaotic. Amen? Life in this world is chaotic. We need shelter. In fact, some of the smartest guys on the planet, so there's there's some sociologists at Harvard who have put out some, they put out some research, it was published, it's been in several books. There's a guy named Robert Putnam who has used this research and written several books about it. But he, they, they put out some research that talks about that human beings, if they're going to actually be happy in this life, there's four things that every human being must find. By the way, these, these aren't, they're not Christians. This isn't Christian research, but it's telling us Christian truth. There's, there's four things that every human being need to find happiness and wholeness in this life. And one of them, one of the four, is some framework, some way of dealing with the reality of suffering and death. In other words, if you don't find some source of hope in the face of suffering and death, you never truly will be happy. Sociologists from Harvard are telling us what we already know. 
what the Bible already has revealed to us, that suffering and death is a real problem, that this life is chaotic, this world is hectic. In fact, I was just thinking about my own life, right? Like, I was thinking about my own life over the last two months, the fact that we can't, you can't, it's not like you can just kind of pinpoint one problem that makes the world hectic. And I'm not even talking politically at all. I'm talking about the world is hectic and chaotic in every country, in every culture, in all forms of government because it's broken and deeply marred by sin. And I was thinking even in my own life, like it's so multifaceted over the last two months. Um, two months ago, I was sitting on my front porch. I was FaceTiming with a good friend of mine. My wife was trying to get my attention, but I was deep in conversation with her, or with my friend on FaceTime. And finally, she slings open the front door, and she says, we're in the closet. Get inside. There's a tornado. And I'm like, hey, hey, dude, uh, I got to call you back, right? And so I hang up on him, and the next thing I know, there is a tornado that is flying over the neighborhood beside me, ripping apart homes, upending people's lives in this community. Life is hectic. It's chaotic. Fast forward another couple weeks, I get some phone calls from family members, two different family members, whose marriages are on the brink right now. And there is no denying the fact that there is legit spiritual warfare and demonic attack that's happening in the marriages of people that I love. Their marriages are getting ripped apart. Last week, I preached a funeral for my aunt who got sick and her lungs quit and her body died. Last, yesterday, you turn on the news and you see a story of evil, people shooting and killing, senseless, senseless violence, shooting and killing people, motivated by evil and racism. Like, life is chaotic. This world is hectic. And you can try and bury your head in the sand and numb yourself with entertainment and comfort and material but at some point, you run into it or it runs over you. Where will we find hope? Where will we find shade in the chaos of life in a fallen world? You see, this is what Mark is calling our attention to. He gives us Jesus' parable saying, don't miss the kingdom of God, the hope that you need, the rescue that you need in the midst of a chaotic world is found and it's available in Jesus. And then he lines up for us three miracle stories in a row that show us the good news of Jesus in, in the face of the most chaotic things that we could experience. First, natural disaster. Second, the demonic world and evil. And third, sickness and death. That's what we're going to see over the next three weeks. It's almost like a little mini-series that you're about to get here on Jesus' miracles, Jesus' victory and his lordship, over nature, over demonic, and over evil, and over sickness and death. And so I want to encourage you to really dig in over the next few weeks as we study this section of Mark. If you're a Christian, I especially want to encourage you to dig in because we're going to look right into the face of your Christian hope. Like these miracles of Jesus, what they are is they're like little windows. Like Jesus is pulling back the curtain, and he's given us a peek through a little window of the future that he will bring when his kingdom comes in full. Or you could think of it like a little movie trailer, and we get a peek of what does it look like when the lordship of Jesus rules and reigns in full. 
if you're not a Christian, you're going get to a, get a picture of what it would mean for you, what it would mean for your life to, to be fueled by Christian hope. If you would entrust your life to Jesus and turn your allegiance over to him, you'll see what's available, what it is that, we, uh, what, what it is that he offers us as we live in a chaotic and broken world. So I want to encourage you to dig in. We're going to start with the first miracle moment, Jesus calming a storm. Look back at the text, Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him, and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? I want to stop for a moment. One of the things that I want to say about this text is that what we have here is a real-life encounter with natural disaster in Jesus' day. All right? Um, I've heard a lot of sermons on this text. I've heard some pastors that will preach this text, and they will start immediately by, like, allegorizing the text. What I mean by that is, like, you've heard the sermon probably, if you've been in church for a while. Like, they'll, they'll immediately just kind of make this whole text a metaphor. Like, hey, Jesus has the power to calm the storms in your life, right? You've heard that. And that's certainly true. That, that is a true principle or application of the text. But we can go there too soon, and we can overlook the fact that Jesus, this is a real-life natural disaster that's happening in Jesus' day. Other preachers will like theologize the text, and they'll talk about how there's like hints and shadows of, of Jonah, if you're familiar with the Bible, of the Old Testament prophet Jonah, and how he was asleep on the boat in the raging storm. And they'll say, Jesus is the true prophet, the faithful prophet, unlike Jonah. And again, that's certainly true. But if we go there too fast, we miss what's really happening. A natural disaster is happening in Jesus' day. Jesus and his disciples, they're attempting to cut across the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is tired. He wants to retreat. And he wants to continue his ministry in a new area. And so they're, they're trying to cut across the sea. It's evening time. It's late. They're trying to go about 10, roughly about 10 miles, which would have taken them a couple of hours, depending on uh, the, the wind speeds of the day. And Mark tells us that on their way, a great windstorm arose. And I think that it's likely that these experienced fishermen who lived on this lake, they knew these waters, they knew uh, how storms came and, and what happened. I, I think that they maybe probably had a pretty good idea that, that likely there was a storm coming. Um, uh, maybe they even thought that the, the winds from the storm could actually help them get across faster. That could happen. It could either speed you up or it could slow you down, depending upon the winds. I think that they probably had a pretty good idea that some sort of storm was coming, but it becomes obvious based on Mark's word, word choice that they didn't see this kind of storm coming. Do you notice that? Mark uses the phrase, a great windstorm. He's going to use the word great three times to add emphasis in this text, and this is the first of the three. A great windstorm, he says. He says waves are breaking into the boat. He tells us that these experienced fishermen who have logged hours upon hours on this lake, no doubt before in storms and in rain, that they begin to panic. And so what does this tell us? Well, it tells us that they hadn't experienced a storm like this before. We need to know that storms were typical on this lake, but not storms like this. Um, I grew up on the Texas Gulf Coast, near the Texas Gulf Coast. And 
pop-up thunderstorms are like an everyday occurrence on the Texas Gulf Coast, especially in the summertime. Uh, Storms pop up all the time. People are used to it. In fact, people continue on their kind of normal everyday life in the midst of a pop-up thunderstorm on the Texas Gulf Coast. You're out for a jog. Oh, there it is. You see it kind of rolling in. It rains on you a little bit. No big deal. Keep running. You're out there fishing. You're playing on the beach with your kids. You're vacationing. Oh, pop-up thunderstorm. Uh, It'll be fine. It'll rain for a little bit, and then it will move on. But here's what I also know. About every 10 years or so, that pop-up thunderstorm is a significant tropical depression, or it's a hurricane, right? And sometimes it comes out of nowhere. Even like the guys that get paid a lot of money and are on the news, what I call the professional weather guessers, those guys, even those guys, sometimes, sometimes those guys don't even see it coming, right? I mean, even the tornado that we experienced here in our community, there were tornado warnings that day, but they were all like down in South Austin. The professionals thought that that's where they were going to be. I'm FaceTiming on the porch. Kids are playing wiffle ball in the street. No big deal. All of a sudden, there's a tornado, you know? Um, and so the, the sea of, the, these guys no doubt knew that rain was coming, but I don't think they had any idea that this kind of storm was coming. The Sea of Galilee, it's, a, really, it's a really a small body of water. It's not really a sea at all. Think of it more like a lake. It's about 12 by 8 miles wide. It's 200 feet deep. And what makes it unique is that it sits at about 700 feet below sea level, and it's surrounded by mountains. Uh, Mount Hermon is about 30 miles to the north, and that mountain range reaches uh, about 9,000 feet high. 9,200 square feet is how high that mountain range is. And so I want you to think about what would happen. It still happens to this day on the Sea of Galilee. The cold air from the mountains can, eat, can quickly blow over, collide with the warm air of the water, and boom, storm. On this particular day, though, this was an exceptional storm. And by the way, even still to this day, on the, uh, on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, there's beach area. And even to this day, like, there are signs that are posted, like, warning, beware if you park your car here. Because at any moment, an exceptional storm could pop up and your car will be flooded and washed away. And so this kind of thing happens. It doesn't happen often, but it does happen. And based on all of this, based on Mark's language in the text, a great storm, the panic of the disciples, the mention of the fact that there are other boats who are following Jesus. Don't miss that little note in the text. There are other people out on the water that night. There's likely other people fishing. There's probably plenty of other people still on the shore. There's other people that are putting their boat in the water to follow Jesus to the other side. Nobody saw this kind of storm coming. And in the midst of all of it, this unexpected, intense storm about to upend lives, about to wreck boats, about to wipe out whoever else is on the lake that night, about to swamp everything and everyone, Jesus is sleeping. And here's the question that a good reader of the Bible should ask of the text here. How could Jesus be asleep during all of this? I mean, how could he be asleep? Is he that tired that he could sleep through the ruckus of a boat rocked, being rocked by wind and being overcome by waves? I mean, I guess it's possible. It's likely that he was exhausted from ministering to the crowds the full day before. It is evening after all. He didn't want to retreat. He asked his disciples to take him out into the water. So it's possible that he was that tired. It's also possible that Jesus knew what was coming and that he was ready to display his power and teach these disciples an amazing lesson. We know that Jesus had foreknowledge that's well documented all throughout the Gospels. I actually believe that both are at play here. I believe that Jesus is actually truly exhausted and he wants to sleep. And I also think that Jesus is in no hurry to wake up. 
the disciples respond to him. And their response seems to indicate that this storm is so violent that nobody should be sleeping through it. Like, it's not reasonable. In fact, they say to him, look back at the text. They say to him, don't you care that we are perishing? And I think this is a really honest question. I think this is a really, a real question. Like, Jesus is in no hurry to wake up. They're about to die. And they come to Jesus, and they're like, don't you care? Now, there's, there's a lesson that's hidden for us Right here. A lot of people will look at this response from the disciples and they'll think, man, these guys really lacked faith. What faith they lacked. And they'll kind of pick on the disciples a little bit. But I actually think that there's something beautiful about what they do. I think there's something that we need to learn from how they come to Jesus, how they wake Jesus, and how they question Jesus. You see, we have to understand first that their fear is legitimate fear. This is not faithless fear. They are about to die. They are in the middle of a natural disaster, of a catastrophic storm. And that fear actually drives them to Jesus. Do you see that? It actually drives them to Jesus. They rush to him and they come to him honestly and they wake him. And they say, Jesus, we need you. Wake up. And I wonder how many of us in our most dire moments in life hold back our most violent most real questions from God. You see, to be honest with Jesus about how we really feel and about what we really need is what the Bible calls lament. And lament is all over the Bible. It's to come to God with our real questions and our real pain in an, in an unhindered way. And it's not to show lack of faith, but to lament is to actually express faith. To say, God, because of the precious blood of Jesus Christ, I know that I can come to you as I really am. And how I really am right now is terrified. How I really am right now is angry. How I really am right now is I'm so deeply sad. I'm anxious. And the Bible says that we can come to God in that way because of the precious blood of Jesus Christ, just as we really are. Did you know lament is all over the Bible? Did you know that Jesus, our Lord, in his most painful moment, hangs on the cross and questions the Father? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, to lament, to bring our real pain and our real questions and our real doubt and our real stuff to God is not to lack faith, but it is to express faith. It's to pray to God in such a way that it builds and grows our trust for him, even in our most vulnerable moments. And I want to encourage you, church family, let's be a church that so believes the gospel that we come to God this way. We don't have to be buttoned up before him. We come to him with our truest, realest self. In fact, I believe that it is this posture that actually arouses Jesus' rescuing love for them. I want you to look back at the, at the text, verse 39. Jesus is going to wake up, and he's going to speak. And he speaks to the storm, and then he speaks to the disciples. Let's look first at what he says to the storm, verse 39. And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, Be still. Peace. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. 
First, I want to look at what he says to the storm. The, the text tells us that he rebukes the wind and he commands the sea. The word rebuke in our English Bibles is the Greek word epitomeo. And it's an important word to truly understand the text. Um, it means, in the original in the Greek, it means to forbid. I want you to know that it's a, it's a word that is supercharged with negative emotion. Okay? Like maybe in your Bible, it is translated as um, silence. Does anybody have that in your version of the Bible? He says, silence, be still. Yeah, David does. In the ESV, it's peace, be still. Some versions of the Bible it will say, hush, be still. It is a supercharged word with negative emotion. Jesus is not happy about what is happening. He is rebuking the wind almost in anger, in righteous anger. It's important. And what it does is it actually reminds me of Jesus. You know the story in the Gospels where Jesus stands before Lazarus, where his friend Lazarus is dead? Did Jesus already know that Lazarus was dead? Yes, he did. Was Jesus in any hurry to get there? No, he wasn't. But when he gets there, he looks into the eyes of his friends and he sees their real human grief. He sees the experience and the reality of real human grief. He sees their brokenness and their pain, that their family member, that their friend is dead. He sees it, he experiences it, and he weeps with them. And then he says, rise. I think the same thing is happening here. Jesus looks into the eyes of his disciples. He sees that real human experience of fear and terror, the chaos that the creation is raging all around them, that their life is about to die. And Jesus sees it and he's moved by it. He says, it's not supposed to be this way. Be quiet, wind. When he says peace, don't be confused here. The word is not like kind of you're rocking a baby and you're trying to hush a baby to sleep. It's more like when your toddlers or your kids are fighting in the, in the car seat in the back, you know, and you turn around and you're like, you're like, be quiet. You know, it's like, it's like, that's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus emotionally moved is intervening on behalf of those he loves. He's rescuing them from death at the hands of disaster. And then suddenly at his word, we're told that the wind ceased and that there was great calm. The winds cease and there's great calm. Second time that we see the word great, emphasis added. You know, there's some skeptics that would argue that the climate on the Sea of Galilee, uh, in the same way that it will cause storms to just kind of suddenly pop up, that storms would also suddenly dissipate. And so skeptics, skeptics would say, did Jesus really have at his very word power over nature? Is that really what's going on here? Or did the storm just go away? which is common. But one of the things you know if you've ever set through a storm on any body of water is that the storm can be gone and an hour and a half later the waves are still raging. You've experienced that if you spend any time on water. Mark adds the emphasis, great calm. He wants us to know that suddenly the waves stand still. He wants us to know that Jesus has authority and power that defies the law of nature. Of nature. Great calm falls over the sea. In other words, the chaos of the raging creation, surrenders at his word. And so this is what we have. We have a raging, deadly, violent, life-altering, natural disaster in Jesus' day that suddenly surrenders to King Jesus. And what is the result? The result is that people in the boat were rescued. The result is that all the other people that would have been fishing for a living on the water that night, their lives are saved. The result is all of the people that lived and worked around the shore, 
their lives are spared and their livelihoods are saved. You see, church family, what we need to understand from the text, from this little window in which Jesus is pulling back the curtain, is that the creation is broken. The creation is broken. The more that, that, that scientists study it, the more that our environmentalists work on it, the more we realize that creation needs mending, right? In other words, it's not only human beings who have been infected by sin. All of creation has been infected by sin. Um, there's one theologian that talks about the creation. Or like, it's like glorious ruins, right? We can st- sit on the beach and we can see the glory of God in creation. We also can watch a hurricane s- uh, come over the beach and we can see the roar of the broken creation. In the same way that us as human beings, we're all created in the image of God. We're glorious ruins. We're all created in the image of God. Every person has basic human dignity because we're made in the glorious image of God, but we are all also sinners who have been deeply infected with sin who, are sin, who contribute to sin. We are broken. We need salvation. Romans 8.22 says it this way. It says, the whole creation is groaning like the pains of childbirth, awaiting its final redemption, awaiting for Jesus to come again and to set creation right, to set all things right. And we know that the creation is groaning. We see it manifest in a dozen ways. We, we see earthquakes that devastate people and communities, volcanoes, landslides, droughts that kill thousands and thousands of people every year, especially in more impoverished countries who don't have the resources and infrastructure that we have. Tornadoes and storms and hurricanes and floods. Did you know that last year alone, 99 million people were affected by some form of natural disaster? 99 million people lost their lives, lost someone that they loved or had their home or their job or their livelihood upended by a natural disaster. 99 million people last year alone. And here in this little window, we see King Jesus bringing calm and bringing peace. We see King Jesus getting up and he's saying, enough, it's not supposed to be this way. And with a word, he brings shalom or great calm, as Mark makes a note. If you don't know the word shalom, I want to encourage you to write it down. Shalom is the biblical word for harmony and wholeness. Shalom, harmony and wholeness. Shalom is what existed in the beginning. Shalom is what God put into the very fabric of the being, as, of creation, of our being, of all the world, as, we, as he ruled and reigned it, as he walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, as everything that he made shined in his glory. Shalom is what was there. Wholeness, oneness, peace. All creation experienced shalom before sin entered into the world. But then upon the curse of sin, shalom was lost. Shalom was replaced with curse. But the good news of the gospel is that shalom is what Jesus will bring when he returns. That shalom is what Jesus will bring when his kingdom comes in full. And the truth is, this truth that we see displayed right here in this text, right here in this miracle, Jesus with a word, that's the power that he has. That's the lordship that he has. With a word, he brings shalom into this moment. This truth that we see in this miracle, it should bring peace It should bring great calm to the hearts of those who trust him. See, the truth that King Jesus, the one who died and was buried and rose again, 
the one who rules over all creation, the one who has promised that he will come again, the one who is with us even now by his spirit until he comes again. The truth that he has the power to set all things right with his word and the truth that he has promised that he will indeed make all things new upon his return, that truth, what it should do for us as people who trust him and know him, it should drive out all fear. It should drive out all anxiety in our present. It should cause us to live as a people of peace, as a non-anxious people in a chaotic world. And that's hard, isn't it? But, that's, but it's the truth that we have, nonetheless. The truth that we can access by faith. That truth that, that he can, at his word, set all things right, and that he has promised upon his return to make all things new, that truth should make us a people of contagious faith, even in the face of life's biggest storms, whether figurative storms or literal storms that we might find ourselves in. You see, we have access to something that is profoundly transformative in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This text makes it clear that Jesus' first disciples, these guys with him in this boat this day, did not yet, quite yet, have that kind of faith. They didn't quite yet have that kind of faith, but I believe that they were on their way. Look at how the scene ends. Look back at verse 40 through 41. Just imagine the moment, by the way. Just imagine this moment that they just lived through. And then he said to them, why are you so afraid? That's like a, are you kidding me, Jesus, question, you know? Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. It's the third time we see the word, emphasis added. Great fear. And said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Do you see how their fear has been reordered from the beginning of the scene to the end? Do you see how their fear has been reordered? The fear of the storm has been replaced with great fear of the Lord. Great fear, Mark says. And their question to one another, I want you to know, is a question of absolute, utter amazement at what they had just been eyewitnesses to. Who is this man that stands in the boat with us? Who is this man that even the wind and the seas obey him. I believe that the dots are starting to connect for them. In the Jewish tradition, this would have been an incredibly obvious question and answer. It would have been like if you're an NBA fan and I asked you, who's the GOAT? Who's the greatest of all time? Like the answer is obviously MJ. And there's no debate about it. No debate. Like in the Jewish tradition... That question and answer would have been elementary. Who is it that even the wind and the seas obey him? Who is this man? You see, the answer to that question was obviously God. The Jewish tradition, God controlled the winds and the seas. In the same way that you learned the Pledge of Allegiance in elementary school, they would have known this truth. Psalm 107 is a psalm that would have been known by anybody in ancient Judaism. They would have known Psalm 107. Psalm 107 recounts God's faithfulness to God's people in all circumstances. I want to read to you Psalm 107, verse 28 through 30. It recounts God's faithfulness to rescue God's people in the moments that they found themselves in the raging seas. It says, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. 
He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them out and brought them to their desired haven. The disciples are starting to see the obvious. Who is this man? Is he God? Is he could he be God? The dots are connecting. Jesus is becoming clearer and clearer. And what holy, fear-inducing realization that must have been, the thought that they could be standing in a boat with God himself. And I hope that as we have been working through the Gospel of Mark, the same thing has been happening for us, that the realization of who Jesus is is getting clearer and clearer to you, that the reality of the great hope that we have in him is getting clearer and clearer to you. The realization from this particular text that the creator, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who spoke all things into existence by the power of his word has come near to us in Jesus. The creator has become our redeemer. The creator, the one who knew you before you were born, who knew you before you were born, who formed you in your mother's womb, has lived for you and died for you and risen for you and is coming again for you because he so loved you. That's who he is. What a savior. And here's our takeaway today. The one that has power over all creation, the one who promises that he will redeem all creation is your Lord, if you are in Christ Jesus by faith. He's your Lord which means he has power and he can redeem every area of your life when you come to him by faith. So we do get to that application, don't we? The storms of your life, it's in the text and it's true. Any area of your life, when you come to him by faith, he can redeem and he will bring shalom. He's promised to do it. And so what I wanna do this morning as we close is I wanna invite you to come to him I want to invite you this morning to bring anything in your life that needs his peace, to, to truly bring it to him, to not let a, a moment pass. I want to invite you this morning to entrust yourself to him anew. I want to invite you to remember this week this truth, because here's the reality. Life is chaotic, and we walk out of here, and none of us know what the next day holds. None of us know what the next week holds but we know who Jesus is. We know the power that he has. We know the promises that he's made, and that should fill us with great fear and great hope. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at redeemerrr.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.